This is the Impunity Observer monthly live stream. I'm your host and publisher of the Impunity Observer, Fergus Hodgson. Thanks for tuning in. Go to our website, impunityobserver.com for all the updates and get real-time updates over Telegram, Twitter. You'll find us there. The best way to keep in touch really is through our monthly e-newsletter. And you can also subscribe for unlimited access. We usually do these monthly live streams with Steve Hecht, our co-founder and editor at large. But this month, given the assassination in Ecuador, I thought it would be prudent to work with Mauro Echeverri, our deputy editor in Quito, Ecuador, and examine what exactly has happened with the death of Fernando Vicencio. Okay, Mauro, welcome to the live stream. And let's let's first just clarify what happened. So there's a lot of noise that's been been going on internationally about this assassination, but let's just clarify how many people were involved, who are the alleged perpetrators, how much support did this gentleman have, how much of a threat was he to actually getting into the presidency, why would he have been targeted? Hello, Fergus, and thank you for having me. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Talking about Fernando Villavicencio, he was a very controversial figure. He was attacked while leaving a campaign event at about 6.20, 6.30 local time here in Ecuador. There were allegedly six gunmen who fired around 40 bullets against him, and three of them hit Villavicencio in the face. He was a 59-year-old politician. He used to be a journalist. He was now a politician recently, but he used to focus his investigations on corruption, on mafias, on narcos, and on high-ranked government officials. So he, he was really feared by everyone because he always kept uncovering on revealing new stuff. Uh, new cases. Uh, in fact, it was after his investigation, his bribery investigation against uh, Rafael Correa officials that he was, uh, that Rafael Correa and his vice president, uh, Jorge Glass, were both sentenced uh, to eight years in prison. In terms of how popular he was, he was, as I tell you, a controversial figure. So it is hard to measure. Some polls were saying that he was in the second place. Some others were saying he was third, and some others were saying he was fourth. However, it is clear that he was probably one of the favorites to get to the runoff, which uh, the uh, with the candidate, which is now the favorite ca- uh, presidential candidate, uh, Luisa Gonzalez. Luisa Gonzalez is uh, a candidate from Rafael Correa, so he was basically Correismo versus one of the next three contenders uh, for the runoff in case there is a, a runoff, which is still uncertain. Okay. Now, let's let's clarify these charges because I did read that he, he himself was charged and went into exile. Do you want to clarify what happened to him there? Sure. Uh, Villavicencio was charged by former President Rafael Correa because... Correa was saying that there were that he made false allegations against Correa uh, and that Villavicencio was staining Correa's name. So he went to exile uh, and he came back uh, with the Lenin Moreno administration, with 
which was Correa's successor. So he came back and continued working on investigations. He went to the Amazon region. He went then to Peru, and then he came back to Ecuador. So basically, he was always against Correa, the and 21st century socialists, as uh, we call them here in Latin America, which mm-hmm. are the the same that, for, like for the Sao Paulo Forum, it's basically the all the the group with Lula, Gustavo Petro, uh, and all the leftists in Latin America. Uh, one thing I would like to clarify about Fernando Villavicencio is that many people right now in the media are calling him that he was a right wing candidate. Uh, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't say he was right yeah. because he used to be a, a member of Pachacutic, which is a leftist orga- a leftist movement here in Ecuador. He used to be a, a union leader, so I wouldn't exactly say he was leftist. But what we can certainly say is that Villavicencio was definitely against a 21st century socialists. He was always against them, so. There's, I would say he he's also he was also leftist, but not in the sense of, uh, an, or in the same level as 21st century socialist. Uh, yeah. So let, let's just clarify there. I think you got a little bit mixed up there. So basically, calling him a right winger or something like that is simply not accurate. He was a union leader, a working man's candidate, and he simply was, let's say, an old-fashioned leftist who did not like to see parasitism or corruption in his own ranks. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, yes, that is exactly what, what Villavicencio was. Uh, and, you know, there's not much other words to describe him in, in an ideological way. And let's, let's just clear up these charges. So he was charged with defaming Rafael Correa, and I think it was an eight-month sentence, and he went up into the Amazon, but then eventually got settled in Peru, then Lenin Moreno, who was the following president after Correa, he was also of the left, but less, let's say, aggressive or dictatorial than Correa. And so he was more inclined to let Vichy Vicencio back into the country. Now, what were the actual, Jorge Glass and Correa, what were their charges and did they serve any time? Sure. Glass was in prison for about eight years. He, he, he recently came out of prison, like, I'm, if I'm not wrong, in July or June. Uh, and Correa, Correa is now a fugitive from Ecuadorian law, and he lives in Belgium. So he never got to serve any time. Um, it is thought that when Correa comes back, he will serve a time in prison, but I think he's never, he's never been back to Ecuador. He's always traveled to Mexico. He traveled to Gustavo Petro's. Uh, inauguration. He's traveled uh, multiple times to Argentina, but he has never set a foot on Nepal since he was charged with this uh, sentence. What is such a bizarre scenario with this gentleman who pretends to be a a leader? He's really just a fugitive from justice, and he's hiding away in Belgium, away from his home country. And okay, now. Let's let's just talk about the context a little bit because, as we discussed before going live, the fact is that this did not come out of nowhere, that there were many threats, and just two, three weeks ago, the mayor of Manta 
one of the chief port cities in Ecuador was also murdered. So this, in some ways, is just an escalation of that process. Yeah, I, totally. Uh, this is just like we're seeing with facts how violence is escalating in Ecuador. And this is not just a political violence, it is violence in general. And there's a dominance of narco presence in the Ecuadorian state. And that's just a fact. And Villavicencio, in fact, was one of the people who were investigating this. And, and we can see this in just we can see the, the rising violence not only in politicians, but it happens everywhere. Uh, for example, there are coastal cities like Esmeraldas, uh, Manta, that are seeing an increase in violence and an increased presence of narcos in general. There's a lot of extortion over local businesses. Uh, these cities are being taken over by, by narcos and criminal organizations that have no fear and they are basically right now dominating the country and causing a lot of fear in, in Ecuadorian citizens. So, I mean, Villavicencio was one of the people who has always shown to be against them. However, I mean, this can set up a, a whole new precedent and a whole new paradigm. Yeah. And let's just let's just touch on, on a few of the details of this event. So first... All the suspects, so there were six, there were six in custody and one was shot at the crime scene and then died later. All were Colombian nationals. Nationals. How, is this the perception in Ecuador that in some ways it's an imported criminal uh, racket that's taking over the country, that it's not homegrown? Uh, the perception here in Ecuador, is, it's hard to say because uh, we have a lot of Colombian nationals here in Ecuador. We have a lot of Venezuelan nationals here in Ecuador. And in mm -hmm. fact, uh, there's been, there, there are reports that Ecuadorian uh, or criminal organizations have been working with uh, Mexican criminal organizations, Colombian criminal organizations, and Venezuelan criminal organizations. So it, it is really hard to say if these Colombians were working on a national organization or, or they were on behalf of uh, a foreign uh, criminal organization. Uh, mm. About the details, it is said, according to a report of uh, Noticias Caracol from Colombia, that uh, these uh, six Colombian nationals are allegedly the gunmen uh, for in, in Villavicencio's crime. Uh, they had contact with at least three Ecuadorian politicians, which are not yet revealed, but uh, as the investigations are still ongoing. But uh, this is just like mind blowing to see how other Ecuadorian politicians can be involved in this. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that, yes, these particular gentlemen were foreigners. However, they could have just been contracted by locals. And I should note that in the Manta killing of the mayor, the mayor of Manta, the driver of the assassin was Venezuelan. Uh, they did not catch the gunman himself. Now, Lasso, Guillermo Lasso, the, the sitting president who has dissolved the parliament and is just waiting for the election on August 20, so just two weeks away, or less than two weeks now, he is called in U.S. support, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, 
why is that a thing? Is that really going to scare anyone? Why is it happening? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that the last administration is doing that because uh, Lasso himself is aware that there's no justice in Ecuador. I mean, impunity is rampant in Ecuador. It, uh, it, it happens every day. Every day there are murders uh, that are being set free from, from prison. Uh, so I think Guillermo Lasso does this to show the probably the material and intellectual authors of, of the Villavicencio crime, that there's probably going to be consequences in this specific case, at least. Uh, and for, for in the name of Villavicencio, his family, his friends, and the entire country, I hope there is, um, we can find the, the authors of this murder. Because otherwise, it, it, it just sets a new present for other politicians, other uh, people that want to speak up, and not it, it it undermines the rule of law also. Well, one hundred percent. If you see a mayor and and a congressman who's now a, a, who was a presidential candidate getting knocked off, are you going to open your mouth to challenge the the cartels? No. So it really does undermine free speech. It undermines you know who can or, or is willing to run in elections. It is it has a, a serious or, or terrible chilling effect on the country, and I should note also that the Movimiento Construya, or it might be the the building movement or movement that is building, the English translation would be, they said that their own headquarters were attacked. Also, do you want to comment on why that was would have been necessary? That the hope would be just to shut down that party or intimidate the entire party. Sure, I, I'm. I'm. I'm not sure what the intention was. I think, in my opinion, it was to create a little bit more chaos uh, to make the party fear them and fear uh, these organizations or whoever did it. Uh, it. It is important to highlight that Villavicencio was um, threatened on by multiple. Uh, different criminal organizations, so it is still very uncertain to attribute this crime to a specific organization. As of now, uh, there was a video uh, circulating online that these were a group uh, that the Villavicencio's uh, murder authors were uh, a group called, a criminal group called Lobos, uh, which means like wolves in English. Yes. Uh, however, the this group made a new video in jail saying that they were not the perpetrators of this crime. So it, it's still very fresh to know who this was. And in fact, we still don't know who was the killer of Agustin Tiago, which was the mayor of Malta. So yeah. it, is, it is hard to say that we will know certainly who was the, the author in at least some, some time. Yeah, so... Guillermo Lasso goes on on stage and says, "This this crime will not go unpunished." But of course, how can he promise that? He doesn't know, right? So, even if he brings in the FBI, we can't assure that. So, I I I fear that is a little bit of political grandstanding, and whether they'll actually find. And the problem is too that these would have been mercenaries or hired thugs. That the actual real 
as you said, the authors or those pulling the strings, they're the ones who really need to be punished in this in this instance. But whether we'll find out who that was, I don't know. Now, in terms of our work, our colleague Andres Sebastian Diaz Ponce, or just Sebas as we call him, he has been writing on this. I just was concerned his English wouldn't be strong enough to go on the live stream. But he has written about, I mean, almost a year ago, he wrote an article, The Origins of Escalating Violence in Ecuador. And then more recently, I mean, kind of sadly, in terms of timing, just in June, so right before both of these two incidents, he wrote, Why Ecuador's Law Enforcement is No Match for Narcos. Now, let me put these, we'll put these in the show notes, and let me put these in the live stream feed. I'll put the links to these two articles. These are important ones, and you can also get them on my LinkedIn, to be frank. But why don't you comment, uh, model on why it, there's been such a, just a spike in just the last two years. I mean, of, of course, crime was always a problem in Ecuador, right? I've had friends who've been kidnapped and drugged in Ecuador, but it appears that something changed a couple of years ago. What changed in recent times? Yeah, so there's a lot of theories about that. Some of them say that uh, leftist governments from Lenin, Moreno, and Correa uh, had agreements with these mafias. Uh, but there was uh, an event, a particular event that uh, really created this spike in violence, which was the murder of uh, a gang leader. Um, and then this, what this caused was the separation of multiple gangs, different gangs from the same gang. So oh, I say new gangs emerged and they are now fighting for a, a, a territory a control a routes to take more mo- uh, to uh, I mean narco traffic uh, they are create uh, they are fighting for this and also they are fighting for just power in general and, and connecting this with Villavicencio's uh, murder Villavicencio was uh, complaining about an alleged um, an, an alleged tie between Ecuadorian police and military officials with uh, narcos and criminal organizations. Yeah, uh, and what what we can see is that there are many cases of police officers being bought off by narcos, and and this is something that happens in all Latin America in the border controls and etc. Uh, so he he was talking about this. Um, this can also be a, a factor that uh, helped this spike in violence. Uh, also, they have gained control in, in jails. That is why we have seen over these last couple of years a lot of news about Ecuadorian jails and massacres inside Ecuadorian jails because gangs are uh, are dominating uh, inside of the jails and they are fighting each other because and jails are their center of control. They have internet, they have even found animals with them on, on, on these jails. So this also have, is another factor that the lack of control in prisons is another factor that uh, lead to being spiking violence. Yeah, what an irony, really. The place where they're supposed to be locked up, they're actually most active in their criminal activities. It's insane. Now, there's there's another piece of the puzzle which Sebas referred to, 
and this is in the book, in the article, Why Ecuador's Law Enforcement is a Match for Narcos, that I wouldn't say there's a defund the police movement in Ecuador, but there is a great deal of suspicion or hostility towards them. So they feel as though they're going to be, the other ones will be prosecuted if they do anything. Yeah. So what happens here is that there are precedent of police officers attacking and shooting criminals and being the police officers who shot the criminals being uh, in prison. So there's also a big fear by police officials that if they they shoot or they kill it, any criminal, they can be taken to jail. And yeah. this is because uh, the judicial uh, system here in Ecuador seems to be, at least it seems to be, uh, supporting criminals instead of police officers, police officials. And we can see that by uh, criminals, alleged killers, being released three, five days by, by judges here in Ecuador, being released from prison. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the problem that it, it appears that organized crime, along with maybe ideological partners in the judicial system, are going after those who want to actually uphold the law that flip that flip their role on its head and this is what let me just read a little bit what seba said he said that even though Guillermo Lasso signed a decree to enable the armed forces alongside the police to carry operations against gangs because Lasso is leaving office in november right so he's we're going to have an election this month and then probably a runoff and then then the new president in november this leaves the door wide open for officers to be prosecuted for killing alleged criminals and raids, as they have been many times before. So basically, the police are going to say, why would I risk my own freedom and future in an, in an extremely dangerous, and I assume not that a not terribly well-paid job? And so they just won't. They'll just look the other way. And so is, is this leading to a rise of, let's say, a response paramilitary or private security force? Yeah, I mean, it, I wouldn't call them paramilitaries, uh, but we can see here, right right now, I'm in Quito, and we can see that there's a lot of businesses that now have their own uh, security officers. They, yeah. uh, they hire private uh, security. Instead, the people here are, when it's at night at least, from around 6 p.m., 5 p.m., uh, we can see that many businesses, restaurants, bars, almost all kinds of businesses are hiring uh, private uh, security. So it is something that is definitely visible to everyone. Uh, I remember five years ago, this was not the case. I mean, we all relied on police officers, although we were always aware that, I mean, there's there has always been criminal activity here in Ecuador. Yeah, uh, We were always aware that, I mean, if, if, if it gets... Uh, dark, it's probably a bit dangerous, but uh, we were never really this afraid as we are right now. And we can see that in almost every business, every bar, every restaurant, every every event. Yeah, well, there's a kind of a chilling you know, timeliness to this assass assassination because just this month, we're in August, we're working on an article or an investigation. You're leading this investigation as far as I know into why journalists are fleeing Ecuador. Uh, duh. If you, if the, and the thing is that in the past, there have been, let's say, 
threats or there's been intimidation or like you said with Korea, people getting sent to prison or sentenced to prison for uh, criticizing him and him losing his temper because he said he's I shouldn't I should be keep my mouth clean here but he has little patience let's put it that way and however we've gone beyond just political intimidation and words people are losing their lives for speaking out and so why would journalists stay and do you want to comment just on on the initial work that you're doing regarding this investigation? Sure. Uh, we're working, we're talking with a couple of journalists. Uh, some of them have been threatened. These threats, as far as I know, they do not come from the state. Uh, in, the, in, in contrast to previous, previous years, in, in, in Korea's uh, time, we we were certain that Cor Correa himself was the one blaming the press, and he was saying always "prensa uh, corrupta," which means that the press is corrupt and right. stuff like this, and constant aggression. But right now, it is mostly from criminal organizations. We're aware that the Albanian mafia is operating here, and in fact, it, I am sure. Uh, because I talked to some people close to Anderson Boscan, which is one of the latest uh, journalists that played that Ecuador. Yes. That uh, it was the Albanian mafia who threatened uh, Boscan, his family, and also uh, the rest of the team at La Posta, which is the, uh, the media where Boscan worked. Right. And let, let me just touch upon, well, gosh, I didn't even know about the Albanian mafia at work in Ecuador. I mean, everyone seems to be having a crack to take over Ecuador lately. Now, Sebastian, in his article, did say, he did refer to this lack of control of prisons, which seems to be a real uh, chokehold or real sensitive, sensitive point where you would think, if you want to get a grip on this, go for the prisons right away. So in twenty. 2021, 2022, there were 11, let's say, massacres or major violent events, and 419 prisoners died. So you've got more than 400 prisoners being killed in two years. Something's going on, right? This should be the place where they're locked up to, I guess, pay their due, and this is not happening at all. And as Sebas writes, some of the ringleaders are in jail, so the prisons become their operation centers. And the main gangs, the Choneros, the Latin Kings, the Wolves or Lobos, the Tigorones and Fatals or Fatals, how, I don't know how you pronounce that one, they dominate access to the coastal prison that holds the most dangerous prisons. So basically, they run the prisons and they dictate to the police who can and cannot enter. What kind of insanity is this? And why has Lasso failed to address this? Because I'm sure he knows what's going on. He's aware of this. Yes, so that that's the question we, we all ask ourselves. Why has Lasso not managed to control prison? He's been in, in power for over two years. And the main thing is that prisons are supposed to be the place where you control and you make criminals pay their due. But this doesn't happen in Ecuador. Uh, and what what I can see from the government right now is that he has appointed people that are incapable um, of doing the job, of getting the job done. Yeah. And 
Yeah, and what I think also is that she doesn't have uh, an, a clear idea of what's happening. I, I mean, I, we are all aware that he knows that jails are having this issue, that prisoners are controlling the jails, but he, I, I mean, his security advisors are not telling him the reality or he's just not taking action on it. And the reason why is something we're still debating here in Ecuador. Okay, folks, look, Mauro obviously has plenty to say, and I'm so glad we could get coverage on the ground from Ecuador. Mauro Echeverria, Deputy Editor of the Impunity Observer, a wonderful man in our team. He is working on an investigation just targeted on this topic this month, and we, we obviously planned this before the event took place, so we were aware of this rising problem. Go to impunityobserver.com, get on our monthly e-newsletter. This is completely free, and uh, you'll receive, yes, just one month with a commentary overview from me, and then a summary about, and then links to all our content for the month. And then if you pay, I think it's just $20 per month, you can get unlimited access to all the content. You can get up to six articles for free. So we're very generous with making our content available. Otherwise, Maldi, yes, thanks. Thank you uh, for joining me and for explaining this to the international audience. I look forward to being in touch. Cheers. Cheers.